I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Deep Dish Radio, episode 19. All-around fun guy and rock and roll keyboard player, Andy Kahn. <laughs> Welcome back to Deepest Radio. I'm Tim Powers, and this is my show. You like my new microphone? I got a new microphone today. I thought you might take that. Uh, hey, listen. My guest today is Andy Kahn, and Andy is a, uh, a session musician. He is a uh, music demo producer, and uh, he played keyboards for the Turtles, for Flo and Eddie, among a zillion other acts. The guy's amazing, and he's... Uh, I keep saying it throughout the interview, but he had a front row seat at the greatest era of rock and roll. And uh, really, he's, he's a cool guy. You're going to enjoy meeting him. I, uh, I met Andy in Palm Springs uh, just a few weeks ago, actually. I was having brunch with my mom, and uh, Andy was just, just had a gig playing piano uh, at the place, where I was, uh, the place where I was having brunch. And, uh, and we just struck up a conversation, and the guy is amazing. Um, I had known of Andy's work before and have a few of the albums that he played on, not the least of which is Illegal, Immoral, and Fattening by Flo and Eddie, and he also played on the Monkees album, Pool It. Now, there's some controversy about Andy, and we actually put that to rest here today. There is a rumor that Andy is the guy that created the opening bars, the piano that you know from the Monkees hit Daydream Believer in 1967. Is that true? Is that not true? Andy says so right here. In the meantime, I'd really appreciate it if you tell your friends about Deep Dish Radio. Make sure that they know about us. Make sure that you go to iTunes. Leave a nice comment about how much you enjoy the show, if you do. Uh, and you can email me directly. I would welcome that. I'd love to hear from you. My email address is tim at deepdishradio. That's tim at deepdishradio, of course. You can follow us on Twitter at deepdishradio. And uh, there's, a, there's a Facebook page. So punch in, uh, go to Facebook, look for Deep Dish Radio with Tim Powers, and uh, and that will be that. I'd like to give a shout out to my friends at Zilch, the Monkeys Podcast. Ken and the guys over there and, uh, and the ladies over there do a fantastic job of, uh, of a Monkeys Podcast, and I uh, appreciate them giving me a shout out. I'm returning the favor, and if you dig the Monkeys or if you are a fan of uh, 60s pop culture or you just have good taste in music, I invite you to... Uh, check out the podcast called Zilch. It's available wherever fine podcasts are sold. Lots of great stuff happening here. And uh, would love for you to be a part of it. 
Hey, speaking of monkeys, I want to tell you about my friend Emily Dolenz. Uh, you've heard me speak of her before, but she is a very talented fine art photographer who, uh, who is selling prints of her work, and it's really knock your eyes out good. Um, you can check her out on Etsy. Uh, if you go if you go to Etsy and you punch in Emily's name, it's spelled exactly like you think it would. Alternately, uh, her Facebook page, facebookpage.com backslash Emily Dolan's Photography. And, of course, she's got a Society6 page where uh, a lot of her work is available for sale. Society6.com backslash E. Dolan's. And, uh, and you will see some art prints and tote bags and travel mugs and... Uh, you know, pouches, pillows, things like that. And it's really, it's exciting stuff. It's its great work. And Emily is just incredibly talented. And I encourage you that if you are a fan of beautiful artwork, beautiful photography, flowers, hearts, and uh, all kinds of just beauty through someone else's eyes, you're going to want to check out Emily's stuff. So it, so go to your uh, the browser of your choice, the search engine of your choice, punch in Emily's name. It's Emily Dolan's. Now here's Andy Kahn. And let's talk about how this how this began. You said you've been doing this since 1965. So tell me the story, because every every musician, every rock and roll fan, every radio guy I know has a story about when they know they had the bug. They know that first single, that first note that 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 made the hair on their arm stand up. Where did it start for you? It started uh, sitting in classroom at show and tell. I think it was. Okay. And somebody played a 45 RPM record called Runaway by Del Shannon. Shannon's Runaway, sure. We have to check our archives and find out what year that came out. But in any event, uh, that keyboard solo, I learned it when I went home. I played the record and I kept on playing the record until I learned how the keyboard solo went. And you did yeah, it by you did it by ear, or yeah. did you uh, did you just uh, were you already taking lessons? Never took a lesson. I actually lied. I took one lesson. Wow! And uh, the one lesson was this lady, and she was very nice, and she was trying to teach me how to do a scale. You know, da na 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 na. Right? Oh yeah. Well, I couldn't do it. She wanted my finger to go across my thumb and jump over to that singer and do this clumsy and I couldn't do it and I gave up right. on getting piano lessons. But then, of course, uh, I'm probably repeating the same word that millions and millions of musicians repeat is because of the Beatles on Ed Sullivan with their freaking Beatle boots and their Tyson Nehru jackets and the Hosser and the Country Gentleman and the uh, Rickenbacker and uh, the Ludwig, I'm done. And the Beetle Vox Super Beetle Amp. Forget about it. Right. Oh, it became my life. I wanted to be a Beetle when I grew up. Didn't we all? So uh, that really did it to me because uh, I was busy making monster movies with all my friends, 8mm sound, uh, 
1962, right. 63. And uh, uh, that was fun. I was using classical music, you know, De Meister Singer or, uh, you know, the Flying Dutchman Overture or, <laughs> or the Rite of Spring or right. uh, all these two uh classical music. And then the Beatles, of course, just like completely changed my life immediately. And I began to write all these songs that had flatted fifths and minor thirds and all these cool uh, changes when you least expect it and nice harmonies. And holy shit, my, my songwriting just like grew like a flower as soon as I heard the Beatles play, you um, know? Yeah, I, I, I get it. Believe me, I uh, am, am too young to have seen Ed Sullivan, but and by the time I, uh, I was musically aware, the Beatles were already a force of nature, so... Uh, but but believe me, I get it. Every guy who who picked up a every every guy who picked up a guitar owes a little bit to uh, to Elvis and John Lennon. Runaway, by the way, came out in 1961 on the. Uh, I'm glad you looked it up. On the big top Your 45. Multi-one. Yep. Yeah. February 61. I'm and, so, uh, I'm sorry I didn't know it off the top of my head. <laughs> uh, well, I'm glad you were able to carry on an interview and look information up both. Same time, ladies and gentlemen. I'm good. Unbelievable. He's good. Anyway, uh, so what do I do now? I'm a Beatle guy, and I get this local band in New Rochelle, New York, and I start booking all the colleges, you know, Yale College and and West Point and all these, uh, uh, you know, uh, Manhattanville College and all these, you know, big gigs, and I'd book our band for 100 bucks a night. Four hours. You growing your hair? Uh, I, we were all Dave Clark Five uh, because I didn't play guitar. I played the combo organ. Okay. With uh, left hand is the bass that went into an Ampeg bass amp, and the right hand was the Leslie cabinet speaker. So literally, I had a little miniature Hammond B3 with the bass. <laughs> so it sounded really full. And I had the guitar player and the singer and the drummer. It was like our version of, you know, and we, we had some pretty good stuff. I could uh, play you a song I wrote called uh, She's Gone Away that was produced uh, by Roy Sisla, I think is how you pronounce right. his name. He produced everybody wow. in New York at his studio. So I was lucky enough to be one of the kids who wandered in there at like, you know, 17 years old, 18 years old, whatever, 16. Who knows? And uh, he produced a great that I wrote, but we never got to put the vocals on it. But it's been released on these uh, Garage Band compilation uh, CDs that everybody gets. Wow! Like it's called Johnny Farfisa. <laughs> wow! Originally, originally released on Moxie Records. There was a collector's label by David Gibson called Moxie Records, and, and it, uh, it came out with just the instrumental, no vocals. Right, it's just the instrumental Johnny Farfisa. She she's gone away, you know. Bomp Records carried it. Uh, Rhino Records carried it. It was like it's a little collector's thing. <laughs> so, so that's that's kind of funny to be an unreleased guy that never came out, and then all of a sudden you're released and you become a garage band guy. So it's really funny. In fact, I was in New Zealand. Walking down the street, because I was there with Little Richard or somebody. Right. And someone comes running up to me in the middle of this village 
on a cobblestone street in New Zealand, and he's waving the Johnny Farfisa Moxie Records uh, EP at me. He goes, Andy, Andy, sign it for me, sign it for me. I'm going, what? In the middle of New Zealand, one kid runs up to me with the Johnny Farfisa EP and wants me to sign it. It was the most hilarious thing I've ever seen. And that is rock and roll. Yeah, I mean, one autograph for one crazy guy in New Zealand, of all places. That's so really that was, amazing. That's yeah. really amazing. And that was your first recorded uh, first recorded piece? Yes, yes, recorded at Bruno Dean's studios. It was a two-track recording. First, you lay down your band, you know, with like three microphones, one for the drums, and one for the guitar amp, and one for the piano. Right. And that's it, three mics. And it went on to a half-track thing, and then the other half-track was the vocal overdubs and the tambourine. And we had one chance per song. It wasn't multiple takes. We had to be rehearsed four songs. I think it cost, I paid for it all. It was like 25 bucks. It was a lot of money. It's a lot of money, yeah. <laughs> yeah, in 64, 65, whenever that was. Absolutely amazing. It was, uh, 60, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, we recorded a whole bunch of demos and, and had different bands in the 60s. Yeah, and, and then uh, I, and you moved west, huh? At this time yeah. you were you were you were writing music but you were I would imagine you were doing covers. What were some of the some of the more popular covers that that you guys were known for? Oh, Satisfaction. We did a like a uh imagine the young rascals playing Satisfaction with the Hammond B3 with the full Leslie playing the you know the big Hammond sound, right? Instead uh, of so, instead of like Otis's cover, you know, where it's got that groovy kind of key to it. You're, you're... exactly yes, and uh, actually, I performed uh, Satisfaction with Little Richard on the uh, uh, American Bandstand twentieth uh, anniversary show, like Otis Redding, where we did it like with the horn section, you know. Wow. It was hilarious. Uh, and Richard would be jumping around the stage for 20 minutes, and all he'd do is go, I can't get no! And he's just waiting there, I can't get no! And that would, that's all his lyrics for the whole song. And he's sweating, and he's jumping, everybody's going nuts. He gets the audience going absolutely insane. That is what Little Richard uh, is for, man. Little Richard is the king. Yeah. uh, uh, Chuck Berry's the king, too. You know, because I'm telling you, it's a funny thing. When I sat there at the uh, uh, Palladium, where they shot the uh, Grammys for uh, 1973, and uh, Stevie Wonder won the award for Ain't Too Superstitious, Right. So Chuck Berry and Little Richard were hired to music in, uh, introduction to the contestants of the best song of the year or whatever. Okay. Uh, you know, Barry White and all these other uh, guys were up for the thing. So they take a Chuck Berry song like, uh, you know, Johnny Be Good, and they'd say, uh, uh, Barry White, take it away, you know. And or they instead of Tutti Frutti or Rudy, it's Al Green. He's clean. So they changed the uh, uh, contestants' names 
for the Little Richard Chuck Berry hit records. Wow. And I was the music director and I'm going I'm going to myself, Jesus, the Beatles loved and idolized Paul McCartney idolized little Richard and had to go woo and do all yep. that shit. And John Lennon loved the rock and roll of Chuck Berry's rhythm guitars and stuff. Yep. You know, you know, the Chuck Berry rock and roll. And so the Beatles idolized that and that would influence the Beatles to play music. Here I am with Chuck Berry and Little Richard, just the three of us, playing their hits. You're hanging out with the Beatles' parents. It's so hilarious. I mean, it's little things like that when it's happening to you, you don't really realize how cool it was. And so years later, when you look back and you go, holy shit, I was in a room with Little Richard and played themselves, just the three of us. And I go, holy shit. Okay. That's really amazing to me. Now, to me, that's amazing. I got to explain something. Yeah. I, I apologize. I think because I'm a fan of. I didn't start out being a musician. I started out being a monster movie maker. Right. But because of the Beatles, I'm a fan of it. So actually, when I meet really cool musicians in my career, I'm actually like a fan. You know, I'm not like a self. You know, like a a peer, like another fellow musician. I'm acting like a fan, like when I'm sitting there with Gracie Slick or Stephen Stills or somebody. I'm going, "Wow, you know, this is so cool." Yep. And so uh, other people don't do that, but I do it all the time. Because <laughs> I, you, you know, I gotta ask, keyboard player to keyboard player. I'm not a player, but I mean, you're you you're a rock and roll keys player, and you're in front of little effing Richard, right? And, I mean, I'm, well, that's got to yeah. be intimidating, man. Actually, um, the best part about it was I would play the Hammond organ on stage, and he'd be on the grand piano. Eventually, he would jump off the grand piano and grab the mic and start running around the stage and doing shit. I'd get off the Hammond B3 and run over to the piano and take over. But I would watch him carefully. Uh, he's like a Jerry Lee Lewis. They both have the same, you know, the same. Uh, Those sixteenths. Uh, triplets. Yeah. The triads and the sixteenth, and uh, they both. Uh, well, Jerry Lee loves to just you know washing up and down the keyboard right. and all, and sometimes they go on the high notes. They just make a uh, a clam, which is just random notes in a cluster that you go real fast on high, you know, on the high register on the piano, and it sounds awesome. It sounds like you really know what you're doing. But you're just slamming the freaking piano at a very high speed and high notes, and it looks cool and it sounds cool. <laughs> so that's one thing I learned by watching Little Richard and uh, Jerry <laughs> Lee Lewis. You could put your leg up there, and you can turn around and do all these movements, and it sounds great, too. Even though if you really analyze it, you're not playing any chords. You're playing rhythm and banging just random notes out. It's so fucking healthy. That's awesome. That's just absolutely incredible. That's how I learned rock and roll piano, by Little Richard. And you, Literally. But you learned that before 73, right? You learned that well, as a... Yeah, as... I mean, I was watching all these uh, movies and stuff with the Dave Clark Five and... Uh, Mike Smith, you know, standing at his uh, uh, 
Box Continental, the same keyboard that Ray Manzarek used. Right. Now, the reason Ray Manzarek used the Vox Continental was it had a flat roof, which allowed him to put a Fender keyboard bass up on top of the flat roof of the Vox Continental. But the Farfisa, the one I had, had a rounded roof, but it had its own left-hand bench built in the friggin' keyboard. (laughs) There were black notes against white notes instead of white notes with black notes. You know, they were the opposite color notes. Was there a difference between the ranges that you guys had? Well, yes. Uh, Ray Manzarek's Fender keyboard bass was like two and a half octaves. Right. On the Farsisa combo compact organ that I used that had the built-in, it was just about an octave and a half. Okay. But it was enough to get your real low pedal C and E and stuff. And it was really cool. I play left-hand bass and right-hand with the Hammond B3 organ, and it made us sound so full. It was unbelievably great. And you didn't have to deal with a bass player in the band. (laughs) Yeah, that's what made it really tight, because the drummer and I were tight. My left hand was right with him on the drums perfectly. And uh, the guitar player was really good, and our singer was great. We won all the Battle of the Band contests in Westchester County, uh, let's see, 1964, 5, and 6. Wow. Yep. So you're you're winning contests in '66. Rock and roll changes between 1966 and 1967. Yes, that's when I took an LSD during the period of the release of Sgt. Pepper. <laughs> so, so the entire summer of '67, right? Which was ironically the same summer Happy Together came out. Right. Uh, I was taking the Purple Osley. Uh, 1,500 mics of purple Osley. It looked like an Oscar the Grouch trash can, and it was purple. And it's LSD pure from Timothy Leary's uh, pharmacist, Osley. Osley, yeah, you had the original Osley. I had the original, it was like 99.9% pure lysergic acid 25 Okay, so set the story set the story up, Andy. How did you get it, and where were you? New York City, hanging out with Andy Warhol's dancer by the name of Diana Hall, who used to come see me play in Rye, New York, with my band. Right. You know, with my little uh, Johnny Farfisa band. We were called the Individuals in our heyday. Anyway, so she took me to New York, and, that, and then I was able to score sex, drugs, sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll in New York, uh, Greenwich Village. Wow. Hanging out. So, and I went to the Fugs play. Remember the Fugs? I do. And uh, I was sitting there with Dr. John next to me, and in front of us was Bob Dylan and Keith Richards. And we were watching the Fugs. At the Cafe Wa or whatever in the <laughs> village. Absolutely. This was all cool shit, you know, that I go, oh, my God, I can't believe I did that. You're, you're, you're living history, man. You're living history. And you probably had better drugs than, than Dylan and Richards <laughs> at that time. Well, you know, uh, 
Yeah, pot today is very, very, uh, you know, yikes. Right. Very good. I, I don't need much at all. Just, I don't. In the olden days, you go through a whole frickin' ounce in a couple of days. But, you know, I don't need much with my age and with my life. I'm fine. I'm a happy camper. Right. <laughs> I mean, we, we've gone in in uh, a couple of different points, you know. We talk about the individuals and, and the great days of, of the, the hard scrabble rock and roll days. And then next thing we know, you're the music director for the Grammys. Connect those dots for me, Andy. How'd you get there? Oh, boy, that was a good one. All right, so uh, to, uh, here we go. I moved to California, worked for my mom's friend, Erling Gar, who was the ABC Dunhill executives uh, with the Mamas and Papas, and opened up his own label, Pulsar Records, with Graham Bond from England, the guy who brought the Mellotron to the United States, the guy who had a band with Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce called the Graham Bond Organization. Right. And uh, so he he was my guy. I was assigned as an office boy with a VW bus to go get coffee and to go pick up contracts and go take the musicians to the recording sessions. I was the gopher for $35 a week. And this is about, what, 68 or so? 68? 68, yes. Yeah. September, September 68. And uh, so there I am, and uh, Graham Bonds calls me up and says, uh, Andy, why don't you just throw your harpsichord in the car, and uh, we'll go drive over to TT&G Studios on Sunset, and we'll, we got a, a session. Oh, great, fine. And then, then Mitch Mitchell was setting up his drums. Uh, Jack Cassidy was... Uh, tuning his bass. Lowell George uh, had a little piccolo flute. Graham Barn was on the Hammond B3, and I was there putting the legs on my Baldwin electric harpsichord. And then in walks Jimi Hendrix with two girls, uh, blonde uh, girls, uh, one holding his guitar and one holding his amplifier. Then he decides to sit down right next to me. <laughs> set up and start playing. We played like the blues for two hours straight. Gotta love it. Was it was hilarious. It was so cool. And his veins were popping out of his neck and all this stuff. So oh. anyhow, so that happened. And then a week later, I'm try- I will be getting to the, how I met Little Richard and Chuck Berry, but I gotta tell you the story on the way. We gotta get there, Andy. That's cool. The studio with Graham Bond says, you know, I got a call from Buddy Miles. And he's playing the Del Mar racetrack tomorrow, and his drummer is sick. So we need another drummer to fill in his place. Do you have any suggestions? And I knew the stuff Buddy Miles did, so I said, I'll do it. <laughs> so they had the drums set there. Right. I was on stage at Del Mar racetrack a week after being in the studio with Jimmy Hendrix. And you're drumming for Buddy Miles. Buddy Miles. <laughs> uh, with the double drummer. I was on the stage with the two drum sets. Everything Buddy did, I did. It was all the same shit. Goom, goom, chack, goom, 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 chack, goom, goom. And that's a fast song. The slow song is goom, 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 chack, goom, goom. It was the same freaking rhythm. Yep. It was hilarious. So, you know, I'm in the harpsichord playing with Hendrix. A week later, I'm playing drums for Buddy Miles. So then I meet this guy, Scooby, Frank Sorkin. And, uh, uh, well, actually, Dr. John. And the night tripper, Matt Rabinack, 
was also signed with uh, this record label. So I went on the road with Dr. John. And, oh, man, the stories go on. Anyway, there's so many stories. I, I'll never get to Little Richard and Chuck Berry. Well, the good news anyway, is that if, you, if, you, if you're digging Andy's yeah. stories, uh, keep an eye peeled because Andy is compiling these into a coffee table book that will be available in the dis- in the not too distant future. So if you're digging these stories, stay yep. tuned and uh, and we'll tell you how to get that book when it comes out. In the meantime, you're jamming. You're okay. Yeah. You are just the right guy in the right place at the right time. Somebody says Buddy Miles needs a drummer, and they go, uh, "How about you? Well, how about me?" And I, you know, I love to play drums. It's you know, I'm the I'm the easiest drummer. Ringo Starr was my teacher. I would live the life of Ringo Starr's drumming in my dreams. Goom, goom, chack, goom, goom, you know, all of his rhythms. He was my teacher. Absolutely amazing. Because it's very simple. It's all simple, and did, it's all pocket drumming. Did you did you play left handed? Yeah, uh, the first time my cousin Barry gave me a drum set when I was ten years old, I put the floor tom in front of me, and the snare drum was to the right of me where the floor tom usually goes. Right, and it still worked. So uh, then somebody said, hey, you got it in the wrong spot. You go, the snare goes in front of you. Right. And the floor time goes outside. So, oh, really? Oh, yeah, I guess so. Okay. <laughs> so uh, everything is just caveman with me. I just learned by mistake. It's just instinct <laughs> and, and, and repetition, and then you, you, you get it down until you can do it yourself. That's really, really amazing and impressive. So. So, yes, uh, go, ahead, go ahead. So, man, you're you're the guy on the scene. You're you're working at a at a record label, sixty eight. You're hanging out on the Sunset Strip. You're you're jamming with Hendrix and Buddy Miles, um, and things start to open up for you, right? Um, yes, uh, Doctor John the Night Tripper was in the same office with Graham Bond. He was one of the artists on Pulsar Records. So Andy was hired by Doctor John to play the harpsichord on. Some gigs. In right. fact, he, his wife, Lorraine, bought a VW bus because I had a VW bus. And we were going to drive from California to New York to Toronto and play all these concerts on two VW buses. And that's what we did. In the days and I think be- all the flies and stuff. Wow. Before, in the days before cell phones and... Uh... And CB radios, you guys just had yes. to, had to trek across country. Yeah, it was 1968. You know, you have your uh, diners and telephone booths, and uh, it's just picture it. 1968, pretty amazing. Or 69, actually. Crazy. So it's pretty amazing. So Dr. John walks me in after we finished this tour with him, and we did all the stuff from his Babylon album and stuff. And uh, so uh, he walks me into the Musicians' Union in Hollywood in 1969, and Frank Sorkin, also known as Scooby, was the head of the musicians, you know, booking nightclubs, and, you know, all the rock and roll musicians went to Scooby. Right. So uh, uh, Mac Rabinac, Dr. John, pinned a note on my shirt, (laughs) and the note said, he's good put him to work or something like that, you know, just like a little 
so he guided me into the office, and of course, you know, everybody knows who Mac Rabinac is. So Scooby says, hey, wow, how are you? And so this is Andy. Help him out. Get him a job. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and he just got me, Scooby got me every gig in the world immediately. All the local stuff that was going on, he networked me with other musicians. He put me on picket lines. You know, I make 25 bucks a night, night picketing a nightclub that didn't pay union scale. And then uh, uh, he turned me on to Jimmy Carl Black, no. the Indian of the... Yeah, the Indian of the Mothers. Yeah. So I said, you're kidding me, because my first marijuana experience was listening to Freak Out and listening to Help on a Rock. <laughs> you know, so that was my first marijuana music listening to Jimmy Carl Black going, kajun doon chak kajun doon chak You know, it was the, the waltz, the triplet. Yeah. Anyway, anywho, so here he is. Jimmy Carl Black comes over to my house with uh, Roy Estrada, the bass player. Right. And so we started Geronimo Black, this band. And we played at a church with... Uh, Greg Block, a violin player from uh, uh, Southwind or something, and a, uh, a, a Dr. Lauren Newkirk on a, a synthesizer. It was just a weird arrangement, but we went through several sets of musicians until we finaled uh, with uh, Ray Collins, you know, the singer with Zappa, right. and uh, Bunk Gardner, and... Uh, uh, and Buzz, right? Buzz Gardner too. Uh, Buzz Gardner played on our, our stuff, sure. Right. Uh, 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 Denny Wally played on Joe's Garage, uh, and uh, you know it's just all Zappa-related musicians. And I, I eventually put out three albums called The Grand Mothers, which is all the members of the Mothers of Right. Without Frank, all the stuff. Without Frank all their stuff so it's pretty cool stuff it's, I sold a bunch of those on vinyl records and I had my own record label called Panda Records where I put out the Grandmother's Fan Club Talk album white vinyl square with a cow shankle iron on uh, transfer for your t-shirt and, uh, <laughs> you know I went, I went totally Looney Tunes because I copied everybody else's thing and it was fun I did the leaves uh, uh, Jim Pons was the bass player with the Turtles and sang lead on Hey Joe by the Leaves. And uh, we put out a die-cut green vinyl picture disc of a leaf with the song Hey Joe by the Leaves. Right on. And uh, I also put out an album called The Leaves 1966, which has two unreleased versions of Hey Joe plus the original. Yeah, you want to hear Hey Joe, the, the leaves is the way to do it. Your your producer on Geronimo Black, if you remember. Yeah. That was Keith Olsen, right? Oh my God. What a funny time that was. Keith is the coolest guy I ever met. Now to, I mean, to bring the listeners up to speed, Keith produced uh rumors, Fleetwood Mac's rumors. Right. Yes, and that happened right after Geronimo Black left the studio. He was actually uh, hiring Stevie Nicks as a maid to clean his house. <laughs> this is the truth. 
this is the absolute freaking truth. When Lindsey Buckingham uh, got together with Nix and they made their solo little duo albums right. and stuff. But that, that Keith Olsen did that whole thing. He was the ma- mastermind behind Fleetwood Mac's sound. Yeah. You know, that whole thing. He arranged all that stuff. They were, they're great musicians and singers, but Keith Olsen, he, well, the way he suggests, he's like a George Martin. Yep. You know, he brings out the good in you. Well, like when I was doing a harpsichord track on my album, he was guiding me through it so I wasn't nervous. So, I, you know, I could do it without you know, mistakes. Because when you're under the gun like that and you're a solo instrument, you got to be really good. <laughs> yeah. Especially the harpsichord. Yeah, so, harpsichords. Harpsichords tough because you don't you don't get a lot of uh, there, there's not a lot of flexibility. You hit the note and that's what you get. Yeah, and it's plucking. It's not striking like a piano with a felt. It's a plucking like a pick. Right. The boing plucks the note. So no matter how hard you hit that key, you're going to get the note regardless, right? Once exactly the- correct. But there are harpsichords with this soft pedal. Uh, and it changes the whole height of the strings. But in any event, yeah, that's really cool stuff. I love the harpsichord. It's my, one of my favorite uh, instruments. So the song on the Geronimo Black album that was Russ Regan signed us in 1972, it was called Quaker's Earthquake, and it has uh, Scott Page, a really great oboe player on it. You're kind of in the Zappa universe here a little bit. Because you're, you know, you're playing with these guys. You're playing with these amazing musicians. You're, you're, uh, you know, working with the grandmothers, and then these uh, these vocalists appear in your universe, and you start working with uh, with uh, Howard Kalen and Mark Volman from the Turtles, and the Mothers, Flo and Eddie. Tell me how that happened. That was through Craig Cramps and Cherokee Studios. When I was with Jimmy Carl Black with Geronimo Black, we'd go to Box Canyon and do different sessions at Cherokee. And uh, uh, Richard Nader uh, just did a tour uh, in a movie called uh, Let the Good Times Roll. And Craig Cramp had to do some bass drum overdubs for uh, the Little Richard segments. So I went there, and Flo and Eddie were there recording a soundtrack to a cartoon called Cheap. Or another working title was Dirty Duck. Dirty Duck, right. And it was a Miracombi Swenson Wolf uh, cartoon uh, that Mark and Howard were the voices of the characters. Uh, And uh, so I met them at Cherokee, uh, and they had a band with Bruce Robb, the uh, keyboardist uh, and engineer at Cherokee Studios. He was too busy engineering. So, uh, you know, Mark Volman said, uh, are you available? We need a keyboard guy. So I said, sure. And they gave me a tape of the stuff, you know, from the first two uh, uh, Flo and Eddie albums. And uh, I learned all these great songs and went on the road with John Brado and Gary Rolls. And I forgot the bass player's name. And uh, then after that, that was 1973. And ever since then, I've been playing with uh, Mark Volman and Howard Kaland. <laughs> so and that, that's when that started. 
That's really cool. And you uh, you were the producer of uh, Howard's album from, I think, four or five years ago, Dust Bunnies. Which is oh, a- that is hilarious. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you the quick story behind that. Okay. Uh, we were doing a Turtles concert in Belgium. And on the bill was uh, the box tops and uh, uh, the Procol Harum, the monkey, uh, monkeys, uh, and uh, one other band, uh, Hermit, uh, Peter Noon, you know, Hermits. Right. So we're all on this uh, airplane flying to Belgium, uh, you know, and I'm hanging out with Davy Jones and shit. And uh, and Mickey, uh, uh, I'm friends with all these people. Right. In fact, Mickey and I walked around Belgium uh, looking at, uh, whatchamacallit, red light districts. And, of course, nobody recognized Mickey. It was hilarious. Here I am walking around with freaking Mickey Dolan's in Belgium, <laughs> and nobody recognized him. It's hilarious. So, anyhow, uh, yeah, so the monkeys, and uh, you'll have to remind me what I was just talking about. I just had another <laughs> loss. Uh, you were telling yeah. me about how you got into uh, into producing Dust Bunnies for Howard. Oh, Dust Bunnies. Good, good, good. Okay. So we're, uh, Howard and I are sitting on this airplane, and I said to Howard, dude, I'm the demo doctor. Why don't you come over to my house, pick out 10 of the, your f- favorite songs in life that you always wanted to do, but nobody ever wanted to do them. He says, you know what? I'm going to do it. So we recorded 10 songs of his favorite songs, personal, that nobody ever did. Uh, except for one of them he co-wrote with Mark Volman right. that we did as a demo and another demo we did a long time ago. But uh, I re-recorded them on my uh, Insonic Performance Sampler 1988 Sequencer Sampler. <laughs> and that was the whole band. It was just me and Howard in making this demo. And uh, David Spiro, a friend of ours, through Harry Nielsen and through a bunch of other stuff, uh, he said, Billy Bob Thornton wants to meet you and wants to help you out with your album. So Howard and I went over to Billy Bob Thornton's house, which used to belong to Slash, which used to belong to Roman Blansky, which used to belong to uh, Roger Corman, which used to originally belong to Cecil B. DeMille, which had a tunnel underground during Prohibition leading to a phony storefront uh, in on La Cienica to the Roxbury Drive uh, mansion where they'd have their uh, uh, parties. Anyhow, so I'm, I'm in Billy Bob Thornton's Frick the Studio. Right. You know, uh, and uh, hanging out with him at 2 o'clock in the morning, and I said, you know, could you do Carl for me? <laughs> you know, from uh, Spring Blade. Right. I was sitting there with... Uh, um, uh, Hank Williams Jr.'s daughter, Holly Williams, right, and Billy Bob and me. We were. I was smoking a J. She was drinking wine. He was drinking wine. And I just said, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, I said, you know what? Do you mind just doing Carl for me? And he kind of looked at me like he was ready to kill me. Right. And then he just calmed down, and he's he was in a studio swivel chair, and he just kind of swiveled around with his back toward me and Holly. And then he just crunched over into this Frankenstein mode 
and he'd swivel the chair back, and he was Carl. <laughs> His face was distorted. <laughs> he scared the living shit out of me. He says, yeah, yeah, and he twirled his hands, and they said, yeah, uh, uh, I'm here with a turtle, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. You know, and uh, I was freaking out. That was the most amazing thing, to have Billy Bob do a private performance of Carl for you right there. Wow. You know, shit like that happens. You know, and when it's happening, you don't really realize how cool it is, like I said, until years later when you look back at it and go, holy shit. (laughs) <laughs> I was sitting there with this guy named Billy Bob Thornton, and he does his lead role that made his claim to fame for me, private performance. And he didn't you kick know, your ass when he thought fun. about it for a second. <laughs> I thought, he looked like he could have murdered me any second. He literally had this vibe coming off him like a sicko wacko. And that's how good of an actor this guy is. This guy is amazing. So he was shooting Bad Santa at the same time we were recording Howard's album in his basement. Right. So we got to see all the rushes of uh, Bad Santa, which was very cool. That's really exciting. So that was quite an experience uh, producing that album with Howard. Uh, just you know, to, to know that the guy who sang Happy Together has picked 10 of his favorite songs of life that they always wanted to record and not, it came true not only did he record so, them but but he he rearranged them to or you guys rearranged them to to fit uh you know to fit howard his cover of have i the right Whew, wow oh i gotta tell you the story about that we're sitting at a sushi restaurant uh with one of my demo doctor clients uh Lorraine springsteen and uh, she was a Jewish princess who had no hearing. She had hearing aids in both ears. And she was a singer. And she was one of my clients at the my studio. So she came to a turtle show. We were having sushi with Howard, talking about recording this album. And uh, she, uh, I mentioned the song Have I the Right by the Honeycombs. Right. You know, which is a very fast, up-tempo, girl drummer song. You know, right. up-tempo. Dun, dun, and then dun, all dun, of a sudden, Howard says, why don't we completely turn it into a Phil Spector, slow-tempo, ragdoll song? You know, like ragdoll, Four Seasons. Right. And uh, that's how we went with, uh, you know, dum, 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 you know, really slow. And with the a timpani drum and the big bass and boom, have I, you know, all kinds of, you know, dramatic slow stuff. Right. So that was, a, that was interesting doing that version. That was a good version. All the rest of the songs are basically uh, copied arrangements from Tim Buckley and from the guy from... Uh, the Left Bank, who was the lead singer of The Left Bank? Oh, now you're putting wrote... me on the spot. Oh, right, you might have to look it up while we're talking. I'm sorry. I got the, I got the which cut? But, uh, well, he did the, the Don't Walk Away, Renee, but there's two cuts on the Howard Kalen album, Dust Bunnies, that are written by that guy. If I had the titles in front of me, I could point them out to you. Uh, my dear, 
Oh, well, I, you know, I can't remember shit, you know? I, my brain doesn't work sometimes. And that's why we're recording this, Andy, because this is history, and, and we got we got to preserve this before it goes away. <laughs> hey. Well, that's, that's how I'm writing my book. I don't sit there and type it. I'm looking at all these tons of photographs and documents right. and talking into my computer. I have the voice recognition, and I just hit go and start talking. Awesome. And then I edit it, you know, make it, you know, correct it in grammar and spelling. Well, that's what we're doing uh, here, too. Hey, one of the names that we have brought up uh, that we haven't really gone into was uh, was your good friend Harry Nilsson. And uh, and you were a big part of Harry's life toward toward the end there, man. Uh, And everybody who was touched by Harry has that story. Well, uh, first of all, I was nervous as shit. My job was limousine driver for Flo and Eddie in the 1989 Alice Cooper Clarence Clemens Oktoberfest at Universal City Studios. They had 30 radio stations. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cross country, set up in tents up on the top level of the amphitheater at Universal. And uh, all the celebrities would go from tent to tent and do interviews. I was with the K-Rock Flo and Eddie tent from New York, and I they got a limo, and my job was to pick up Eric Burden and Bobby Hatfield and Elvira and Ed Meany and Richard Lewis and Harry Nielsen and uh, uh, Dean Torrance and pick him up, take him over to the tent. Uh, I'd have my keyboard at the tent. And uh, we'd do Happy Together with the celebrity guests, and we'd also do their hit record. Uh, so, like with Eric Burden, we picked an animal song. With uh, Dean Torrance, we did Bob Aran with uh, uh, what should we call it? Uh, Eric, uh, who was another? Bobby Hatfield. We did uh, the song from Ghost Unchained Melody because it was number one when he was sitting next to me in this tent singing that song while I'm playing the piano. Yep. I mean, God, what a, an amazing episode that was to have all these celebrities 
sitting there with Mark and Howard. You know, Mickey Dolenz comes in, we do I'm a Believer. And uh, Mark and Howard are singing Davy and uh, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) So it was really cool, you know, doing all this. So Harry was one of the guests on the show. I went out to his house and picked him up. And I opened up the back door of the limo. He says, fuck that. I'm sitting up front. <laughs> and he sits up front and he lights up a camel cigarette. And at that time, I was going out with this girl who uh, I was smoking her cigarettes, which were Virginia Slim 120 <laughs> lights. So here I am sitting there in the driver's seat, lighting up a Virginia Slim 120 light. And Harry looks at me like, what are you doing? And he rips it out of my mouth and he gives me a camel. He says, here, have a real cigarette, you know, and we're driving in traffic and he's telling me all this shit about John Lennon. Uh, and eventually you get to Universal, but but you guys form a bond. Uh, unbelievably, uh, when I took him home after the radio show, uh, which I do have a live recording of the show that I posted on Facebook and YouTube already. Right. Anyway, uh, uh, it was a Dillard song uh, by the Dillards, and it was a really cool song. So Flo and Eddie and Harry sang the song, and I played piano. Then I drove Harry home. And on the way uh, home, we stopped at Hawkeye, which was his move, motion picture script uh, organization that would supply scripts to uh, movie companies. Right. So uh, uh, we stopped there, and, uh, you know, he said, would you like a glass of water or something? And, you know, and it was really nice. And then he, he invited me over to his house, and I says, don't you play guitar anymore? Don't you play your piano? He says, no, I'm just doing, I'm just doing my Hawkeye stuff. I'm not really doing music. I says, excuse me? You're Harry Nielsen. You're supposed to be doing music. And he looked at me. And he said, you know, you're right. I said, dude, I'm the demo doctor. Let's just once a week get together and get creative and we'll just make some demos. <laughs> you got balls, And man. that's exactly what happened. And he bought it. He got, got a guitar. He bought a new synthesizer. And, he, and we every week we got together and we acted like a bunch of teenage kids uh, in high school, laughing and and smoking and just uh, really fun. I mean, I couldn't believe it was Harry Nielsen, but once you're with the guy, you forget who he is. He's the most wonderful, funny, intelligent, smart guy. The guy was so smart. Unbelievably smart. Was this Harry's house? This was his house up on Mulholland? Uh, uh, Well, he would hang out at my Laurel Canyon studio all the time. Right. But even before then, I had a place on uh, Hesby Street in the, the Valley, and uh, that's actually where we recorded the soundtrack to the movie starring George Siegel and Joe Beth Williams called Me, Myself, and I. It's on IRS Films, and Pablo Cruz was the director. Wow. Anyway. Uh, it was a, a very cool movie. We cut a four-track cassette of Harry singing the song that he wrote for the movie, and we put it on a DAT tape. And that is the soundtrack for the freaking movie. And we went to the 
premiere of the movie in this big theater with the big screen and all this shit. And Harry and I are sitting in our chairs going, we're giggling. We're going, this was recorded on a four-track set. <laughs> you know, and we're laughing. You know, it's a big production with all these people in tuxedos and the wine and the thing. And we're sitting in our chairs going, four-track cassette. <laughs> And, and but that was really fun. But I mean, you guys are pros, so there's not like the high end hiss that you would get on an old, you know, 1978 Sertron cassette. You guys, you were able to to compress it, but you're right, it's still you you the could still. The fidelity of the demo doctor stuff was minimal. It was minimal fidelity. It was demo quality. It right. wasn't. Yeah, it could have been broadcast quality. There were some mixes I did that were, even though it was a stupid four-track cassette, the way I recorded everything and the way I mixed it, it sounded full and rich and great. So I still was able to, unbelievably enough, get great stuff. And then finally, I got an ADAT. Oh. It was all digital, and I had no generation loss. And I had 32 tracks of sequencing on this thing, and I had... 750 instruments, you know, from uh, harpsichords to violins to right. oboe, flutes, and clarinets, guitars, and everything. So that was a whole other world of the demo doctor with uh, Ringo coming in and doing voiceovers with Harry in my living room, and uh, uh, you know, Eric Carmen bringing John Wesley Harding over and recording, and Harry bringing uh, uh, um, Mark Hudson over, and uh, Okay, hold on. There's a couple of stories I want to get into there. Because at the time that you're doing this, this is a very good time for Eric Carmen because he's just coming off the charts from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Well, he also made a ton of money on that last movie that just came out. I'm his Facebook friend. He just made more money than he ever made in his freaking career. Because they used Go All the Way? It's like triple billion platinum way it's like he's like stunned and when Celine Dion or was it Mariah Carey one of those two did all by myself who did it Mariah Carey oh, all I don't by myself. yeah I think so she had a big with it and that brought him more money than his original release back in the 80s or whenever it was couldn't happen to a better guy so uh when I know he saw my picture in the Music Connection magazine with Ringo Starr, and he calls me up. Hi, uh, you know, Eric, oh, actually, he's secretary. Hi, I'm Eric Carmen's secretary. I said, Eric Carmen? She said, yeah. I said, oh, okay, sure. And uh, he would like to book some time. Okay, yeah, let's do it. And he brings John Wesley Harding in, and they, they do a song, and then he decides to do 30 songs that he uh, wrote before he was in the band The Raspberries, prior to The Raspberries. So uh, these are demos wow. that he had to get out of a publishing deal with. He had to submit X amount of songs to get out of the deal. So he picked all these pre-Raspberry demos and cut them in my uh, ADAT studio. So I did a, you know 30 songs with Eric Carmen in there right. that are awesome. And they're all like, 60 stuff. So you know? where are these songs now? Yeah, why isn't Eric rock. putting them out? Why? Where Where are they now, and why isn't Eric putting them well, out? Uh, no, I'm, I'm his Facebook buddy. Uh, I should say, you know, Eric, for fun, you ought to release the Andy Khan demos of your, uh, you know, 
unpublished uh, pre-Raspberry material, which is the quality is excellent. The bass, the guitars, the keyboards, and the vocals are excellent. Really good mixes. Is so it, I'm very proud of the Eric Carmen stuff. Is it just you and him, or is are there are there session That's guys it. on it's it? The two of us. That's it. Far he plays guitar and keys and bass, and I'm engineering and singing background vocals. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we hear that right now? Here's uh, Eric Carmen and our friend Andy Kahn. The song's called "I Need Your Lovin'." Right here, Deep Dish Radio.
you said Harry brought in uh, Mark Hudson, and uh, yes, I really dig uh, Hudson's production a lot. In fact, just the just yesterday, as a matter of fact, I was playing through some of his old Casablanca records when when he was playing yeah. with with uh, with Bill and Brett. And man, those are good records. Those are great records. And um, yeah, you know, I've I've never never had the opportunity to meet the guy, but I interviewed his brother Bill when when uh, Bill's book came out. And you know, there's just such an affinity between the two of them. And I'm just a fan of Mark's work. Can you tell me a little bit about about working with him and Harry? It's a very interesting situation that happened. Okay. Um, Harry recorded four 24-track big studio recordings with Mark Hudson before I met him. Okay. And nothing really happened. They're sitting on the shelf. And then uh, when I met Harry, he would talk about Mark. He played me the demos and blah, blah, blah. And he's kind of, Harry said to me, you know, uh, I'm a little disappointed because Mark never returns my calls and stuff. Okay. So it was kind of drifting. It was a drifting thing. And uh, uh, um, uh, so there were phone calls and communications, and Mark knew he was, Harry was in the studio with Andy now. And so he wanted to get involved. And uh, uh, he came over. Uh, one of the last recording sessions before Harry died, Harry uh, did a song that he wrote about me called Rescue Boy. It's the same thing as High Heel Sneakers, right. but he changed the word to Rescue Boy. Wow. And it's basically about me. So uh, Mark Hudson and I were sitting there, and I had timpani drums on my synthesizer. So Mark is doing the uh, Chuck Berry, dun 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 with timpani drums. And we both laugh and go, how fucking cool is that? <laughs> You know, so we're, he was very creative, very creative, you know, because when you have a synthesizer with all these interesting sounds and then you play them in a strange way, it becomes very cool. So that's what happened when we cut Rescue Boy. We, uh, the timpani drums uh, played like a, a Chuck Berry, you know, that kind of a guitar lick. So that was very, very cool shit that we did with Mark. He was a lot of fun working. Uh, with me and Harry on that one of those last songs, wow. but uh, that was that was my meeting. And then, of course, at Harry's funeral, Mark was the uh, one of the speakers at the service, right? And he did mention that uh, my that Harry was always with Andy. You want to know where Harry is? He's over at Andy Kahn's house doing demos, and that was what happened. Literally, for the last four years of his life, uh, he had a you know ten kids at home and a wife and. He was never home. We were always hanging out, driving around at 4 o'clock in the morning and laughing and singing his songs at the top of our lungs. You know what I'm saying? Just like, a, can't breathe, you know, yep. stuff like that. Yep. I can't sing to save my life. But when you're sitting next to Harry Nielsen while he's harmonizing with himself, blasting his music, you're in heaven. You're going, oh, my God, this is amazing. Such an amazing yeah. voice. But, uh, were, were you at, and and I, I ask this with respect, um, you know, and, and I mean, it's sad that, that Harry's gone, but were you at the burial out in Woodland Hills? Yes, I was at the, uh, I was at the wake of, of my good friend, Axel, an artist, 
that uh, Harry and I uh, knew very well. Uh, we sat together at the wake and looked at Harry's body and stuff. And then the funeral was another day, right? Or whatever uh, at uh, was at the house at his house. So Jeff Lynn and uh, you know uh, George Harrison and uh, uh, you know what's his name uh, Kermit the Frog's songwriter. What's his name? The guy who runs ASCAP. What's his name? The short little funny guy. Oh, Joe Raposo? ASCAP. Um, no, uh, the little funny guy. Oh, why are there so many songs about rainbows? Oh, uh, Paul, uh, Paul Williams. Uh, Paul, Paul, yes. He was there. Uh, Jim Keltner. Uh, everybody was there at the funeral. So everybody takes the limos and their cars a long way around this driveway to get to the gravesite from the chapel. And so George Harrison and I were the only two who chose not to ride in the car. We walked over this grassy knoll, the shortcut, to the grave. And I, I'm walking with George Harrison. I go, hi, George. My name is Andy Kahn. Oh, Andy Kahn, Harry spoke very highly of you. Wow. And I went, oh, my God. Thank you. And that's all I said to George Harrison. That was the entire extent of our full conversation because it, it was a funeral. You don't want to go, hey, dude, you're a Beatle. You know, like, I really like you, you know? Right. Uh, all I just said is, my name is Andy Kahn. And he says, well, Harry spoke very highly of you. And that was the only words that George Harrison said to me. And then he died two years later or whatever it was. Yeah, it was, it was a while, but so yeah, that, you're right. That, it was, oh man, that's just, that's sad as hell. Um, but I mean, you get you get to walk with George. I've been to Harry's uh, grave, and, and it's a long walk from anywhere. So you, you guys had some time yeah. to walk in silence. The, the, the story that I want to verify, yeah. though, is while, while, they're, while, while Harry's, while they're, while they're laying Harry down, uh, the rumor is that there was a chorus of "fuck you" when they put him down. Bullshit! Never. It was silent and somber. And nobody went. Nobody started it singing. You're breaking my heart. So fuck you. Uh, uh no, 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 no. Right. Whatever. Whoever started that rumor is full of baloney. All right. Uh, it might. You know. It did not happen. I was there. I was sitting at the uh, two feet away from where his grave, his thing gets lowered in. Right. And uh, right behind Una, and and George Harrison and all those. Right. Big wigs had the front row. I had the second row. <laughs> I'll take the so, second uh, row. Yeah. What's that? I said I'd take the second row. That's that's quite that's a lot of good company. Yeah, but you know, like uh, there was a grand piano in the living room. I could have started being Andy and playing piano, but it was a somber. It's a freaking funeral, right? So sure. I didn't want to do that. Unless everybody else decided to play music, then of course I would. Right, but you're but, not. You're not going to be the guy that starts it. No, no, no. Yeah, that's a problem. So uh, anyhow, that, uh, there's so many wonderful stories. Harry would take me over to Timothy Leary's house, and we'd, uh, you know, play. Uh, the music on the floor with uh, upside down instruments and stuff. Uh, or he'd take me to Joe Walsh's house and listen to some demos that he made. Or he'd take me over to uh, uh, the guy who did Harry and the Hendersons, William, uh, oh gosh, William, 
I can't remember the guy, Harry and the Hendersons. He was a keyboard player with Linda Ronstadt. Oh, boy. I, you know, there's so many people I met through Harry. It's amazing. You know, and then, of course, sitting in Ringo Starr's house with Barbara Bach and uh, in the living room, and there's two acoustic guitars uh, with Ringo. And uh, I said, do you mind if I play your guitar? No, go right ahead. So I pick up his guitar and I just start strumming, ding, jang, ka-jang, ding, jang, ka-jang. And then Harry starts singing, I listen for your footsteps, coming <laughs> in up to drive. And then Ringo comes in and starts singing with Harry. And here I am in the key of G, and the song's in the key of C, right. but it's in the low register like this. And they're both singing low, uh, you know, and I'm strumming this G chord, and it's where else are you going to sit there with Ringo Starr and Harry Nielsen playing that song uh, in the wrong key? It's fun. Only, only in your life, Andy. The, the name you're looking for? I know. The name you're looking for? Was it Bill Martin? Yes, thank you. It took you 8,000 years, but we finally got his name, Bill <laughs> Martin. And he was cool ass. I sat on his couch with Harry, and I was stoned out of my gourd. And uh, they decided both to be very mean pirates. And they were going, all right, we're going to make him walk the plank. You know, and all this stuff. And I hear Harry's, you know, pushing his face into my face. And Bill Martin is pushing his face into my face there. I'm going to get killed. You know, and I was stoned out of my gourd, and it was hilarious. I mean, I was literally scared. Crazy. These two guys, they were having fun with me. It was fun. Because the, they, they're both incredible. To, uh, Bill Martin was a hilarious person. Sounds Very like creative. it. Really creative. And to bring it all full circle, he wrote Earth Anthem for the Turtles. Yes, he certainly did. And played keyboards for Ronstadt. And, I mean, the guy's been all over the planet Earth. He's a genius. He's done all kinds of stuff. You look at his bio, you go nuts. Yeah, he's he's all over so, the place. So that's what Harry and I would do. Once we'd finish a recording session, we'd listen to the cassette in his uh, Mercedes and drive all around. Crazy. Oh, let's go over Ringo's. Let's go to Harry. Let's go to Joe Walsh. Let's go over to Timothy's house. Let's go to Bill Martin. He'd take me to all these places. I'd go, holy shit. Was, Just, you know, hanging out with Harry. Was Harry a good friend of Bob Hope's? Uh, Bob Hope. Yeah, I seem to remember no, there but, uh, a, a weird connection between those guys. Uh, uh, there might have been. There might okay. have been. You can Google it. I bet he might find something. Who knows? But uh, uh, he did uh, Playboy After Dark, Hugh Hefner. Right. And uh, Hugh Hefner owed him $15. <laughs> so uh, at one time, I was Harry's uh, office boy. And I would write all these letters to different people, so I wrote a letter to Hugh Hefner, so, and Harry signed it, saying, Hugh, where's the $15 you owe me? So that was one of the funny things I did for <laughs> Harry. Another funny thing I did was there was a radio station called Arrow 93FM. Right. And it was in Hollywood or whatever. And uh, I said to Harry one day, oh, no, Harry actually said to me, I'll tell you what, Andy, let's uh, put a radio tag on me on my arrow. So I sampled the actual Harry Nielsen, me and my arrow, 
and I stopped the sample, then I created the ending, 93 FM, and we stuck it on with Harry singing 93 FM and made a little demo and brought it to the radio station as a gift. So I, I got a letter from the radio station thanking us for a special Harry Nielsen 93 FM me and my arrow uh, spot. That's amazing. You know, 10 second spot. So this is the kind of shit we did. Another thing, he was going to invite um, uh, Carol King over. We were recording Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, but he died. So our right. plans were to have her come sing harmonies with him. Oh. And, I know. And Harry's, know. Harry's vocals hadn't been laid yet? What's that? Harry's vocals for that oh, have not uh, been yeah, laid yet? Already, I, it's already online. You can hear it online. If you Google we, Will You Still Love Me Tomorrow, I think one of the Harry's uh, sons or somebody from his estate uh, started posting all the demos I recorded. There you go. I, um, I can't play them here because I fear the estate, but they're putting them up, so go, yeah, <laughs> Google this and go get them. Trouble with copyright stuff. So, yeah, that's very important. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, there's uh, all kinds of great demos I recorded with Harry. You know, uh, Mother-in-Law, you know that song? Mother Ernie K. Doe. Mother-in-Law. And I did it verbatim. I did a demo doctor version of the track that sounds exactly like the record. So, <laughs> with and with the was, horns and everything? Yeah. Yeah, the whole thing, the whole arrangement, the little piano solo, everything, really exactly like the record. So Harry and I had a lot of fun doing a lot of great songs. Uh, we also, you know, he wrote that song, This Could Be The Night. Right. This could be the night. And he wrote three new verses. And we recorded, re-recorded the song with three new verses about him chewing bubble gum in a car and the lights go out and the windshield wipers are broken. That's cool. pretty awesome. I mean, you helped Harry get his groove back, which was really, really important. Because prior to this, he'd had a, a really rough patch, man. He got ripped off and uh, and just like... And... Yeah, actually, uh, Cindy Sims was his trusted CPA for nine years while he had his Hawkeye motion picture script division company. Right. And over nine years, she took $8 million from Harry Nielsen. And just before they repossessed his house, he found out. And he, of course, had her arrested, but I don't think he ever recouped. But it was devastating. Right. You know, to lose uh, your fortune to this woman. And she had also stolen from other people as well. So Harry wasn't the only guy. Uh, once he did the primal scream on Pussycats with John Lennon, he lost the upper range of yeah. his vocal. He ruptured a vocal cord, didn't he? Yes. It, you yeah. know, when John Lennon does that primal scream. Right. Yep. Oh, it's that, and, but it's that full volume, and it's very destroying your voice. And Harry destroyed his upper end at that period of time. So he really had trouble hitting, you know, he can't do all the beautiful, silky, high, amazing notes anymore. So all the demos that we recorded were in the tenor to baritone vocal range. So he actually on a song I wrote called Karen, there's one part where he had to go forever. 
he was at the top of his throat, and he actually had to stop recording, get up, go to the bathroom, throw up, and then come back to the mic, have a glass of water, and finish singing the song. hard for, me, for him to hit. I know. But uh, Harry was a one of a kind because he was the only guy in the history of music who never toured. That's true. He yeah, always, he never toured. He never did a Harry Nielsen show. He's done television and shit and movies, but he never was, did a live thing until I photographed him at the uh, Beatle Fest that we did together. Yeah, I was going to say, Beetlefest is the only time I can think of him ever playing live. Yep. Yeah, I took him to Beetlefest. And, and actually, it was uh, the owner, Mark somebody, I forgot, Spitz or, or Smith or Spiro, I can't remember, the guy who owns Beetlefest. Right. In New York City, knocked on John Lennon's apartment door, and Harry Nielsen answered the door, because Harry was living with John. And the guy says, is John here? I wanted to ask his, and John says, who is it? And Harry says, some guy wants to ask you something about Beetlefest. And John says, what? And he says, oh, I want to get your permission to do a, a convention called Beetlefest, where all the Beatles fans gather together and buy paraphernalia and do all this stuff. Do I have your permission? So John Lennon says, sure, go ahead. So that, Harry was there opening the door for Beetlefest to uh, start. That was the time when uh, John Lennon gave his permission. All these cool-ass stories. I mean, it goes on and on forever. So when I'm sitting writing my book, I get lost because I get sidetracked because something will remind me of something else. And then I'll talk about something else, and, it'll be, and I'll go around in circles. So it's really nuts. And Thank that's okay, you. man. The, you you lead a life. A lot of us. Uh, you you were you had a a, a front row seat to things that a lot of us only wish we had seen. You know. Oh. And wow, amazing. Um, before we go, there's a there's a rumor I wanna I wanna put to rest. Um, I love this. I can't wait to you tell, ask me this question. Uh, awesome. I, I, I'm prepared. There is uh, there is a legend. 
that you know some people have heard that you are the guy responsible for the piano riff on the 1967 number one single Daydream Believer that it was you who uh, who created that riff Andy okay true or not, not true <laughs> all right I, I have to tell the story because it makes it much more interesting slow and Eddie are comedians satire they love to make fun they love that's why they loved working with Zappa. Right. You know, with the satire and the amazing, clever routines. So they would incorporate that in their show. And what they did was to introduce the members of the band as somebody who they weren't. So uh, when uh, uh, I was the keyboard player, and so they said, okay, you know what, Andy? I want you to learn Davy Dream Believer, and we're going to say you're the guy who played on that. And then the guitar player, Rick Guidotti, we're going to say that he hung out with Stevie Ray Vaughan, and we're going to do uh, uh, whatever that Stevie Ray Vaughan. Ah, 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 what's the name of that? LeGrange? You know, by Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah. And then uh, the drummer, uh, he, we say he simonized the... Um, uh, Santana's car. So we did the Santana song. And the bass player was the bass player on but it was all lies. It was all lies. But we toured for years and years and years and years. And uh, he say, and on the keyboard tonight, Andy Kahn, who's the guy who played on this record. And I go, and everybody would cheer and they'd right. think I was the guy who played on that song. And it turns out, of course, I wasn't. And, and a lot of people started blogs on the Internet, like really angry, upset, very angry. Oh, how can Mark Volman and the Turtles lie like that? But that was the humor. We actually uh, played at a gig uh, where a radio station guy was interviewing Mark, and it's on YouTube. I can show you the video. So what is this deal? Does Andy Kahn really play the keyboard part on, on Daydream? You know, um, Daydream Believer, uh, or whatever the name of his song is. Right. And uh, so uh, Mark says, not really. We just do it as a show. We do it as a, you know, it's part of our show. And we're all laughing, you know. So anyhow, there is an internet website where there's this big block about Andy Kahn and uh, monkeys. But uh, it, I am on a monkeys album called Pool It. I'm on a song that Davy Jones wrote called uh, something about uh, being in love with you or something. I can't even remember the title, but it's on the Poolit album. I think so it's I called I Love You Forever. Piano. Yes, that's what it's called. Yeah. And Davy Jones wrote it, and I play piano on the recording session. So I, I, it's, it's a white lie. I play piano on a monkey song, but it sure as hell wasn't the uh, rhythm section that played on everybody's hit record was it the wrecking crew it probably was the wrecking crew or that other rhythm section you know the same ones that played on the beach boys the the legend uh, is the legend is that the uh that, that that actual riff was was a torque creation i bet you it was i bet you it was so so there you go yeah, andy Khan comes <laughs> clean ladies and gentlemen right here on deep dish radio andy Khan comes clean about the daydream believer controversy you heard it here first Lighten up, people. <laughs> and in fact, it's a, it's, it's a lie. Everything I've told you guys is a lie. I just need attention. 
well, then you will get it, especially when you finish this book and put it out there, because not only Andy and I have talked about this, and not only is it going to be full of chock full of stories, but Andy's personal archives are full of photographs and posters and tickets and mementos and probably hotel room keys and panties from a life on the road with musicians uh, all over the world. Uh, and these stories that you hear, he's got tchotchkes. He's got evidence. He's got the Ark of the Covenant from all of these uh, all these stories. Yes, uh, this is a very exciting moment in history. Well, I was going to say, to be fair, I have stood three feet from you while you played Daydream Believer. And, I mean, you're spot on. What can I say? But, of course, you're spot on for everything I heard you play that afternoon. <laughs> it was great seeing you. You know, I said, look at this guy. He's sitting right in front of me, and he just so happens to have a Flo and Eddie album in his little bag right there. That's true. We'll back up. We'll tell the story. I, I was I was visiting my mom in Palm Springs for, for Easter weekend, and uh, you know she happened to live in a place right across the street from where you were playing, and we're like, let's go find a place for brunch. So we, we breeze in, and there's a poster promoting, uh, promoting Andy, and I'm like, this is the place for me. So we go in, we get a seat table side, and I just so happen to have in my, uh, in my bag of tricks... Uh, a Flo and Eddie album uh, that was waiting patiently in the car because I was going to have it signed by the Turtles who were playing in the uh, casino that same weekend. The, yes, correct. The, the autograph never happened, but I did get backstage, which was cool. Um, thanks, Howard. And uh, But I end up three feet from Andy, and I'm listening to this guy play, and I'm like, this man is awesome. And uh, so I look him up, and I'm like, he's on that album in my car. So I duck out, and I get the car. <laughs> And I come back and I'm like, hey, man. And so you were very gracious hanging out with me and my mom and my beautiful wife. Uh, and uh, and you just played amazingly for us. Thank you. Well, you know, I'm very fortunate that my whole life has been music. There's been people I've grown up with that no longer play music. But I'm 68 years old and that's all I've done is play music. So, uh, like I said, I've, I'm not the guy who had the hit record, but I sure played with everybody who did. And that's the cool stuff that I get to hang out with icons, people that I grew up loving. It's just amazing sitting there talking with them and hanging out with them. That, to me, like I said, I'm a fan um, who became a musician. It's like uh, I, I became a musician out of the love of the Beatles, out of the amazement of that creativity of playing and singing and writing all three things. And looking killer, too. You know, <laughs> all, everything about the Beatles was so amazing. It really was. Everybody copied the Beatles immediately, including the Turtles. You know? Right down Everybody to the, right the T-L-E-S in the name. All right, so let's get the plugs out. Andy, you, you, get, you got a website. You got, uh, you got a Facebook page. Where can people see you? Where can people hear you? Okay, well, first of all, you can uh, buy my CD a digital download on CD Baby. Uh, uh, so uh, it's CD Baby, uh, and the name of the CD is, I'll spell it for you, Snarfle, S-N-A-R-F-E-L, Snarfle, by Andy Kahn, C-A-H-A-N. And it's on CD Baby, and it's got the whole album, including that, Harry Nielsen uh, track that he sang of the song I wrote. Uh, so that's a good way to do it. And, of course, my website is 
all entertainment all entertainment.net all entertainment all so you, you you keep it small all entertainment <laughs> and then uh, uh my facebook is hilarious i i live i'm uh, i should go to a 12 step program because i'm addicted to facebook and my cell phone and my laptop if those items disappeared i would probably be lost i would not know what to do with my life if i didn't have facebook and youtube and my cell phone and my laptop i'm kidnapped by technology i've been kidnapped people would think you're a teenager andy i tell you it's a tough life so, you know i gotta play music and i gotta go sailing and oh my god i tell you i'm living a very tough tough time here and writing a book you know and then you got to deal with guys like me who are like, hey, Andy, I need you to piss away two hours telling me stories that are going to be in your book anyway. <laughs> oh, well, this is good. This is good. But the book's going to take some time because literally I need a software program, probably Photoshop or, or Microsoft Office. Or, I have no clue because I've got to really start building the page-by-page -page imagery along with the text because I'm going to literally build the book myself. Because it's going to have all this imagery going on, so it's it's uh, besides actually physically writing the text, then you have to make it into a very interesting looking coffee table thing. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's a lot of work, but you. So it'll be a couple of years. I would say it'll take a year at least. I mean, I've been working on it for uh, you know a while. I covered my entire living room floor with uh, photographs and documents so I can get to them, so I can see them. Because if they're in a filing cabinet, you have to go weeding through the filing cabinet to find it. But if it's all over your living room floor, you can literally see it. Oh, there it is. It's over there. <laughs> so, so there you go. Andy, when, when the book is ready to go, will you come back and hang with us? Yes, yes. Now, can I tell you one more story? Yeah, man. Mind? All right, we can, you know, I know you have a lot of editing to do, but that's life in the big city. You're going to have to put up with Andy's stories. Okay, I, I was on the, uh, uh, in 1973, I, I was the organ player with Michael Fennelly, who had a, a group called Crabby Appleton. Go back. And you remember? I remember Go Back. I also, uh, also the, the, his, his single after that was called Touch My Soul, and it's amazing. I know, and we did a. Uh, he did an album called Lane Changer. Right. And I was in the uh, live band that performed with him, with John Brado and Clark Dorman, and uh, uh, I can't remember the guy's name on the bass. Anyway, so we played this concert in uh, Spokane, Washington, Epic Records tour, and King Biscuit, and Dave Loggins, and the Flash Cadillac, and Sha Na Na. And Michael Fennelly were on this tour, Epic Records. So we're taking off from uh, Burbank and the uh, Hughes aircraft. And the captain gets on the microphone and says, ladies and gentlemen, the wheel broke on our airplane. So we're going to be on the ground for two hours repairing our wheel. Free drinks for everybody. Oh, shit. <laughs> well, they just kept on flooding the cabin with free drinks. An hour goes by, and King Biscuit takes off his straw hat, and he puts a $20 bill in it. He says, all right, everybody, we're passing around a hat for a streaker. 
you know, because streaking was very big in 1973 when David Niven was streaked on the uh, on the Oscars, uh, right? So uh, the hat filled up with three hundred dollars cash, and I said to myself, you know, I got to make a payment on my Mercedes. So I grabbed the money out of the straw hat, and everybody laughed. And I ran back to the back lane, took off all my clothes in the bathroom there, peeked my head out of the window, and I yelled, is it okay? And the pilots opened up the door, and the three old ladies in the front seat took out their cameras. And then I ran down the aisle naked, and then I ran back up the aisle, and I kept the $300, and I streaked an airplane. And somewhere there's little Kodachrome Instamatic pictures of your butt. Of my naked, hairy butt. Damn it, I tell you, I'd love to see that. Well, surf the internet long enough, everything turns up, right? <laughs> oh, thank you for bringing up Michael Fennelly. Now I got to go uh, go and uh, I actually got to go back and play my Krabby Apple tonight. God, I love that cut. Mm. Oh, he's got he's got a Facebook uh, an account, and uh, we're buddies. And he posts a lot of his classic uh, demos. And he's a great singer. He song he sang a song I wrote called "The Mooch." Oh yeah. And he actually sang it on stage. And the opening to the show that we did was a song that I wrote called "Eleven Times," and it was in a key signature of a, a eleven eight. And it went bound, bound, and then, 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 bound, bound, and then, 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 bound, bound. And it was rock and roll and big screechy guitars. And so uh, we had a good time. He was fantastic. Fantastic. And then right after him, I went with little Richard and Chuck Berry on the road. So it was like amazing shit. All in 1973. And those are the stories you're going to get when you meet Andy Kahn. Believe me. Believe me. Look him up on the internet. You're gonna you're gonna love what you hear. You're gonna love what you see. These stories just keep coming. The man is an endless fountain of stories. And like I said, he had a front row seat through the best area of rock and roll. Andy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, my friend. Please stay in touch. Oh yes, and uh, as soon as the book comes out, you'll be my premier outlet. <laughs> it's an honor. Thank you, my friend. Have a great night. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.